who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated this morning. We are in week eight of our series on liturgy where we are talking about what and why we do what we do when we gather together in corporate worship here at Redemption Hill. We started, uh, ironically, I guess, oddly enough, with benediction, which is what takes place at the end of our gathering together. But we started there because Uh, in some sense, that encapsulates what is happening for us when we gather. Uh, We are coming to gather together under uh, a word, a better word, a word that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Namely, we are gathered under the word that the blood of Jesus speaks over us each and every day. Lord's Day. We went from that benediction in Hebrews 13 to Hebrews 12, where for a few weeks we talked together about acceptable worship. And even the idea that there is such thing as acceptable worship and unacceptable worship. And from that place then we've begun to deal with uh, the different elements and forms and circumstances and occasions of our worship. Uh, Those were some of those uh, vocabulary words that we dealt with. Elements, forms, circumstances, and occasions. And so we talked about one of the elements of our worship, which is the collect and call to worship. We talked about how that each and every Lord's Day, as we are gathered together and that call to worship goes out, that even though it may be uttered by uh, a minister as, as a mediator in some sense, uh, that the call to worship that we've received really is from God Himself. 
And it is in our very identity as the church, as the ecclesia, as Jesus in Matthew 16 said, I will build my church. It's the first time in the New Testament we see that word. It's the word ecclesia. It literally means an assembly of called out ones. In other words, we as the church of Jesus Christ out of all of the world have been called out of sinful humanity to assemble and gather together as the body of Christ. And so each and every Lord's Day as we hear that new renewed call to worship, we are reminded of our very identity. And then we talked about our devotion to the public reading of Scripture and how uh, we are meant to be devoted to the public reading of Scripture, that we are meant to sit under the public reading of Scripture. And last week, uh, we talked about Spirit-filled singing. Spirit-filled singing. Uh, and made a case for why we are a Psalms-inclusive church as opposed to taking a stance of exclusive psalmody, that we are going to sing both implicit and explicit songs declaring the mediatorial glory of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, along with those songs that adore the Father, along with those songs that adore the Holy Spirit, but doing everything that we do, whether in word or in deed, all in the name of, or in other words, by the authority of, the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom and in whom and through whom <laughs> we make our claims according to the redemption that He has wrought for us by the blood of the eternal covenant spilled for those for whom He died upon the cross and for those for whom He was raised to justify for truly as the Scriptures say. He died for our sins but He was raised for our justification. Amen? Amen? And today, we're going to talk about a very simple part of our service uh, that we most recently participated in just a few short moments ago called the Gloria Patri. The Gloria Patri. In our liturgy over the last several months, we've introduced this Gloria Patri into our liturgy, into our weekly Lord's Day gathering. It's not something that we have historically done over the last seven years as a part of Redemption Hill. In fact, over the last seven years, if you've been with us that long, uh, you will notice a, a trend and a progression, a, 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 a change in our liturgy over time. Uh, we have gone from an incredibly informal liturgy, uh, not to an incredibly formal liturgy, but to a more formal liturgy than what we began with seven years ago. And it was just several months ago that we began to include what's called the Gloria Patri in our Lord's Day gathering. Traditionally, outside of Redemption Hill, in the historic church of Jesus Christ, the Gloria Patri has taken its traditional place at the conclusion of the responsive reading of the Psalms. 
And again, I remind you, uh, again, one of those uh, vocabulary words that we talked about was that our worship services are meant to be dialogical. In other words, there's meant to be not only a logical flow, but a dialogical flow, that there is a dialogue that is taking place as the Word of God comes to us as revealed through the Scriptures, prayed, sung, read, preached, eaten, in the, uh, the Eucharist, then we respond. Uh, our worship is then filled with response to the Lord. And, and, and our first response uh, over the last couple of weeks has been our confession of sin. That is a, a very logical uh, flow to the worship and the beginning of that dialogue. God's character, nature, will, and works are revealed to us through the law, through the Old Testament reading. And we respond then, our first response then, is to recognize the separation between God and man. That God is, as the angel said in Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy. Uh, the only place in Scripture that a character or attribute of God is elevated to the third degree. In other words, we would talk about in English as being lifted to the nth degree, as, as high as you can go. Uh, Hebrew, uh, as a language and as a culture, uh, repetition is a form of, of, of emphasizing. It's a form of emphasizing. Uh, there is no, um, oh my goodness, superlative, what is that thing with the line and the dot, at exclamation point, thank you, <laughs> there is no exclamation point in the Hebrew, to emphasize superlative, uh, to raise something in its degree of importance is to repeat it. Uh, if you look in the King James translation of the Bible and you look at the teachings of Jesus, when he's about to say something, uh, yes, everything Jesus says is important, but when he's about to really emphasize a point to the original hearers in the text, what does he say? He says, verily, verily. Uh, in a, or in the newer translations, it'll say, truly, truly, I say unto you, right? Unless a man be born again, he shall not inherit the kingdom of God, he says to Nicodemus. Um, that was a way of emphasizing, of repeating. But nowhere else in Scripture is a character, an attribute of God elevated uh, to the third degree except for the holiness of God. And what is it to be holy? It is to be separate. It is to be set apart. In God's case, uh, it is to be altogether separate. Um, uh, the, the, the utensils that were brought into the temple were sprinkled with blood from the altar. And they were, uh, as it was, sanctified and set apart as holy unto the use of the worship of God. But those utensils were holy. They were not holy, holy. And they were not holy, holy, holy. Because only God is holy, holy, holy. But they were holy. And we, we know what happened when uh, the wicked king uh, who had confiscated those holy uh, utensils 
uh, brought them out for common use in a party. Uh, and what happened uh, at the time of Daniel? Uh, the finger of God, as it were, came down and wrote on the wall, uh, mean, mean, tekel, uh, per- Persia. And Daniel had to come and, and say, what, what, what's going on here? He said, uh, God is going to destroy you, essentially. What happened? They, they brought in for common use the utensils that had been set apart as holy unto the worship of God. Uh, that's utensils. God is holy, holy, holy. Altogether separate. And so as we come and we sit under the reading of the Old Testament Scriptures and we hear the character and nature and works of God read over us, there should be a recognition in our own minds and in our own hearts that God is holy, holy, holy. And what does, what does the law do for us? It acts as a mirror. It reflects the holiness of God. But we cannot see the holiness of God in that mirror without also turning it towards ourselves and seeing what? That God is holy, 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 and I am not, not, not. I am not holy. And so the dialogical flow of our worship is to then do what? To confess our sin before God. We are confronted with His holiness and we confess that we are not. And praise God, that confession does not end with mere we are not. (laughs) But hallelujah, Jesus is. And He was sent for us to be holy, holy, holy for us and on our behalf. And so we not only confess our sins, but the dialogue continues as we again hear from the, as from the Word of the Lord the announcement of forgiveness for those who by faith have found grace in Jesus Christ. Amen? And so from that place of having received again the announcement of our forgiveness and We weren't planning to actually change that flow until after we preached about the confession and absolution. But last week when we actually read the the Decalogue, uh, the, the, the explicit law of God in the Old Testament, Joel and I talked together. We said, let's do it now. <laughs> let's do it now. And so next week we'll be talking about confession and absolution. But uh, we move from that place of confession and absolution, hearing the, the announcement of the forgiveness of sins over us into that part of our service that's labeled for you in your order of service, adoration. Because rightly, where do we move after hearing the announcement of our forgiveness? To adoration. We love Him, First John says, because... He first loved us. And so as we are again confronted, now now confronted with the revelation of God's character and nature, now confronted with His grace, where can we go but adoration? And, And what are the next words that come out of our mouth? The next words that come out of our mouth is the reading of the Psalms together. Uh, Irrespective of 
age or gender, all of us together, the body of Christ, slave, free, male, female, doesn't matter, all lifting up together the words of God to us to return to Him in praise and adoration. But then that portion is ended with this Gloria Patri. The Gloria Patri is a very short and succinct doxology, which has its roots as far back in the church as the 3rd or 4th century. It encapsulates the Trinitarian baptismal formula which Jesus commanded. What did Jesus say in the Great Commission? He says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, and now I give it to you. He's saying to his disciples who are in that moment literally becoming the apostles, the sent ones, because his next words are, Go, therefore, and do what? Preach the gospel to every living creature, teaching them to obey all the things I have commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit. And in the King James, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And, and so this Gloria Patri follows that Trinitarian baptismal formula with G, which Jesus commanded, and therefore, in its very essence, combats Trinitarian heresies, uh, especially the Trinitarian heresy of Arianism, which is where this part of Christian liturgy likely sprang from, because again, it was in that third century that the Trinitarian heresy of Arianism began to creep, creep in. What was that heresy? Uh, it was a, a, a real threat then. It's a real threat now in the church of Jesus Christ. And it is a heresy that denies the divinity of Christ. So remember that original heresy that crept into the church, which we dealt with when we went through 1 John, was that Gnostic heresy of docetism, which denied what? The humanity of Christ. But it was a couple of centuries later, the pendulum swung the other direction and there were those who crept in the church and began to deny the divinity of Christ. And on both sides, that is a tremendous error because we must confess that Jesus was not a demigod. A demigod. He was not, he was not like Hercules in uh, Greek mythology who was half God and half man. That's not good enough. That does not uh, meet the standard that is required by God's law in order for us to receive the redemption that Christ is meant to give to us. We needed one who was fully God and fully man. And so Jesus is. Praise God, He is. He is. Amen, and not was. And so this Arian uh, uh, heresy of Arianism denied the divinity of Christ. It originated with an Alexandrian priest named Arius. And Arianism maintained that the Son of God was created by the Father and was therefore neither co-eternal with the Father nor co-equal or co-consubstantial. Uh, where can we see a similar 
uh, form of Arianism taking place today. Uh, ironically, in uh, a group of people that call themselves the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints. For they do not believe that Jesus is co-equal or co-eternal or consubstantial, but rather was a, ch- a literal born child of God and not the only one. They believe that Lucifer is Jesus' brother. This is not mere, uh, okay, I guess they're wrong kind of error. This is tragic heresy um, and must be combated. And so uh, this Gloria Patri likely sprang up in the church as a way for the church to weakly declare the truth of the divinity of Christ and the divinity of the Holy Spirit. And the Gloria Patri is traditionally known as the lesser doxology. Now, when they say lesser, it doesn't mean like, you know, not as good or, you know, of, of, of lesser value. Uh, but it literally is just shorter. And so the Gloria Patri is known as the lesser doxology. What is known as the greater doxology, uh, you may, uh, may ring familiar to you, begins with the words in Latin, Gloria in excelsis Deo. You probably need to hear sleigh bells uh, when you hear that, right? That's the song of the angels in Luke as they herald the good news of Jesus' birth to the shepherds. Gloria in excelsis Deo. Uh, And so you may associate that with Christmas and the nativity narrative. But these two doxologies, the greater and lesser doxologies, have been sung and said by the church, you ready for this, for over a millennium now. For over a millennium, the church has been saying together, week after week, glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. What we commonly today refer to as the doxology, uh, which we will sing at the end of our service today, was actually only formulated in the early 1700s by a man named Thomas Kinn, an Anglican minister. And he formulated it to be sung at morning and evening prayers. And literally, kind of, he, he, uh, it came up out of Psalm 100, which is why that same tune is used when we sing uh, all creatures that on earth do dwell, the old 100th, Psalm 100, and the doxology. It likewise follows a similar Trinitarian formula. And so the Gloria Patri, to call it a doxology, simply means that it is a praise. Uh, That's why you'll notice uh, in the text of it, uh, since we are speaking English, uh, we use... Uh, that silly little line and dot uh, punctuation uh, there, both at the end of that statement and after the amen, because it is meant to be an exclamation. It is meant to be a praise. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. It is meant to be a, a praise that we lift up. It is, 
It is not meant to be a, a somber, um, uh, almost funeral-like uh, dirge of a saying. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. You know, not, not like Eeyore. Uh, it's meant to be a praise. It's meant to be an exclamation that is lifted up by those who believe it. And so, it's called a doxology because it's a praise. And its original Latin phrasing begins with the Latin word doxa, which simply means praise, or in some cases like this, glory, or blessing. Where have we heard that this morning? The very beginning of our text. What did Paul say? Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a praise. Paul is praising God in the text that we read this morning. And in truth, um, we only actually together historically over the last several months, we actually only currently say one half of the lesser doxology of this Gloria Patri. The full text of the lesser doxology is glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Truly, this simple phrase succinctly encapsulates the Christian ethos of worship. And it is our eschatological hope. Throwing out some big words there. What is eschatological? Eschatology is not, scat- not, scatolog- scatolog- not scatology. Eschatology is the study of last things or end things. And so what is our eschatological hope? It is that as it was in the beginning and is now because of the grace of Jesus Christ in an already not yet sense and ever shall be world without end. Amen. We are not nihilists. We are not looking forward to an empty void. We are looking forward to entering into the pleasure of our King, the pleasure of our Father. We are looking forward to entering in to His kingdom, His reign, and His glory forevermore. Amen? For He is the God of the living and not the dead. Praise God. So this phrase, glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end, amen, is truly an encapsulation of our Christian ethos of worship and our eschatological hope in one creedal declaration of allegiance and belief. As it was in the beginning, to borrow its own language, it is now and ever shall be a battle cry a weekly battle cry of the church against heresy in the church and is in one sentence the purpose statement of our worship. And so literally what was happening 
in the third century as people came into the church and suddenly weekly now they would stand and they would say glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. It was like let there be no mistake where you have entered this morning. You have entered into a place where God will be worshipped. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Co-equal, co-eternal, co-consubstantial. Equally, God. One God in three. And so it was, uh, if you were not Trinitarian, if you uh, succumbed to the, the Arian heresy, you would not feel very comfortable in a place that stood up week by week and said, Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. It was a weekly battle cry against heresy in the church. So let me ask you a question this morning. So that's what we do. We have begun saying that. It is, it is a part of our heritage as believers in the church. It has been being uh, declared for over a millennium by the church. It is a weekly combating of heresy within the church. Uh, that's what we do. Why do we do it? Well, let me ask you a question rhetorically because I'm going to answer it as well. What is the chief end of man? The Westminster Catechism first question famously asks and answers this question. Man's chief end is to what? Glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. It makes no difference who first said this or wrote and recorded it. I do not say it to champion the Westminster Standards. I think they're a wonderful gift to the church. But I'm not bringing that up because, well, the Westminster Catechism says. I'm bringing it up because it is true. And they wrote it because it is true. They wrote it because it is the witness and testimony of Scripture. That man's chief end, there is no other end that we can come up with. There is no, uh, well, excuse me, sir, I object. I actually think that this is the chief. No, there is no other. That is true. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. It is a truth that cannot otherwise be avoided. Man, along with all creation, was created to glorify its creator. Kids, who made you? Who made you? That's right, God made you. And what else did God make? Child and heart. All things. That's right. God made you and all things. Church, why did God make you and all things? To give Him glory. That's why. And how can we glorify God? By loving Him and obeying His commands. And what has He commanded? He has commanded us as His people to gather together and to worship Him. What are we doing when we do that? We are coming together to glorify our God and Creator who, hallelujah, praise God, we get to worship and glorify not merely as Creator, but also as Father. 
And so the Gloria Patri is the purpose statement of our worship. It's why we are here. We are here to bring glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Not only that, it is the purpose of our lives to glorify the God, not only of our creation, but of our salvation. And so I want us to see this this morning in our text, Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 14. It starts out, and what does Paul say? He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, again, I, I remind you that when Paul is saying, Blessed be, he is not in any way, shape, or form believing or thinking or suggesting that we could in any way add anything to God. Now, when we think about being blessed, when we think about blessing in our own lives, what do we often think about? We are thinking that we were in one station and place of life, and because of God's grace and favor and benevolence toward us, something has been added to us in some way, and therefore we would say we are or have been or are being blessed. But when Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is not in any way, shape, or form thinking or believing or suggesting that we could or anyone could add anything to God. If we could, if God lacked anything, he would not be God. And so that's not what he is suggesting. Rather, what he is saying essentially is, doxa, praise be, glory be, blessing be, honor be, power be unto God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has then what? Out of an eternal, infinite, unending, never decreasing wealth, He has blessed us. And how has He blessed us? That blessing has come to us very personally in the condescension and form of Jesus Christ, the Son. And it is not merely blessing who has blessed us in Christ with every blessing, but what kind of blessing is it? What does it say? It says spiritual blessing. Spiritual blessing. Just a few weeks ago, we looked at John chapter 4. We looked at Jesus with the Samaritan woman, and He's saying to the Samaritan woman, the day is coming when people will worship neither on that mountain or on this mountain, but the Father is seeking those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And what did we say was, was meant there by spirit? It was not meant uh, that, that they will uh, 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 worship in, in, in being whipped up into a, a frenzy of emotion. That's often what we think about when we think about spirit. It's emotion. It's, it's this uh, uh, transcendent, transcendent mystic sort of thing, this ethereal thing that we can't really uh, touch and we get warm fuzzies and we think, oh, I have had a spiritual experience. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that there is no such thing as a spiritual experience where you 
uh, well, there are all kinds of spiritual experiences you can have. Some of them are with evil spirits, which can also at times give you warm fuzzies, by the way. So be careful. But yes, there are spiritual experiences that we can have with the Holy Spirit, and that's the point that Paul is making, that the blessings with which we have been blessed in Christ are blessings of the Holy Spirit. That's what he means by spiritual blessings. It's not just these weird things that, that are just out there and these spiritual blessings and, and, and health, wealth, and, and, and vitality and all these things. No! He is talking about you... God has blessed you in Christ. The, 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 the mode that that blessing has come to you is in the form, in the person, in the work of Jesus Christ and what is communicated to you in Christ by the Spirit is the Spirit and every spiritual blessing that comes from Him. Such as everything that Paul's about to say. And what does he say? Even as, uh, excuse me, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Let me stop here real quick before we move on. What does this mean? This means that if you have Jesus by the Spirit, then you have everything that you need. Hear me. You have everything that you need. Now, you may lack in this life in material possessions. You may lack in this life by way of material things. You may feel that you lack intellectually or in your skills or whatever. But if you have Jesus Christ, you truly, in the things that matter eternally, lack nothing. You lack nothing. If in Christ, then you have all you need. He says in verse 4, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. So what is one of those spiritual blessings? What is one of those blessings from the Holy Spirit that is yours in Christ? It is the adoption of God. That is not something that you can just go by and go, oh, hey, yeah, I'll take one of those adoptions, please. Where can I sign up for that adoption? That's not how it works. That's not how adoption works. You must be chosen. It must be extended to you. And how is that adoption extended to you? It is extended to you by the Holy Spirit. So what do we see right off the bat, even before Paul gets to explicit language about the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? We see already, even in the first verse, verse 3, the Trinity at work. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so, Paul is praising. He is doxologing Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, it's interesting to note that Ephesians 1, 3-14 is one long, elegant sentence in the Koine Greek. 
Uh, we look at it and there's commas and periods in here and it breaks it up for us quite nicely. makes it easier for us to read together. But in the Koinia Greek, Paul is literally... He, and, and, and the emphasis of, of it being one long run-on sentence adds to the, the information that we can look at that and go, Paul is literally breaking into praise. He is breaking into praise as he writes this. Is it instructional? Yes, it is instructional. But it is also praise. Which, by the way, our praises should also be that way. They should be filled with truths that instruct, but also uh, lift our hearts in affection and praise to God. And so this passage, uh, as much as it is foundational in its instruction to us, doctrinally, it is at the same moment worshipful in its doxology and praise for the triune God. This passage shows that the triune God initiated and accomplished cosmic reconciliation and redemption. And He did it for one reason. And what is the reason that Paul, again, repeats, which we should know means what? He's emphasizing what's the reason that God did all of this. It was for the praise of His glory and grace for the praise of His glory and His grace. Or expressed differently and more succinctly, we, church, we have a salvation that from start to finish is a work of the Father in the Son and by the Holy Spirit. It is a Trinitarian salvation. It is a Trinitarian work. Blessed be God, who has blessed us? He is the one at work in Christ. It is through Christ that work is being accomplished with every spiritual blessing. It is a work of and by the Holy Spirit as well. In other words, the blessings that we receive from God are saving gifts of God that are conveyed to us by the Spirit so that we can sing with Jonah salvation is of the Lord. Amen? Salvation is of the Lord. And with Paul, we can say that salvation depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Salvation depends upon God who has mercy. And so Paul is pulling back the curtain, as it were, on the mystery of salvation. He's letting us know that justification before God, that legal declaration of us being uh, set right with God, and not only right, hear me, it, we've said this before, justification, an easy way to remember at least its beginning is just as if I'd never sinned, but that doesn't go far enough. That gets us going, but it's not only the removal of our sin bringing us to a place of sort of just base ground level. It is a double imputation whereby our sin is imputed to Christ. That's one. But praise God, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. That's two. Double. Double imputation. So we are not merely forgiven and start out 
at ground level and God says, all right, there you go. You're back, you're back at level. Now you better be righteous. Instead, Christ's perfect righteousness is imputed to us. We get, here's another one of those spiritual blessings. It's a real thing. It's not something that's like, oh, it gives me warm fuzzies. Your account has been filled up with the infinite righteousness of Jesus Christ, which means it can never decrease. No matter how much you sin, you cannot deplete the righteousness of Christ that has been attributed to your account if indeed you, by grace through faith, have come to Christ. This salvation is completely accomplished, totally accomplished apart from us. And it is heralded over us with an invitation to enter into the grace offered to us by the One who is both the just and the justifier, as it says in Romans 3.26. But what is the end game here? Paul's showing us how this justification works. How the work of Jesus' redemption of the people that God had chosen for Him is legally accomplished. But the end game is not that they would be justified. God did not save you so that you'd be saved. God saved you so that you could be adopted into His family and being adopted into His family, the end result would be the praise of His glory and His grace. Why did God save you? He saved you for the praise of His glory and His grace. Why? Because salvation, and by that we mean all that redemption encompasses, is totally a work of God. As Jonathan Edwards is attributed as saying, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Salvation, new birth, born again, redeemed, redemption, justified, coming to faith. We refer to the mystery of salvation in many different ways, and even Scripture can use any of these different terms. But as such, when Jesus is explaining the new birth to Nicodemus in John 3, He is not telling him how he can be born again. He's not saying, okay, Nicodemus, this is what you got to do. Ready? Write this down. This is how you can be born again. Rather, he is telling him how the Spirit accomplishes the new birth in the one who believes. John 3, 7-8 says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Holy Spirit. The new birth is this mysterious work of the Spirit in His sovereign freedom, not an event that we ourselves can bring about any more than our natural birth. Anybody chose to be born? Nobody. So it is with new birth. John 1.12, But as many as received Him, Him being Jesus, to them, those that received God gave the power to become children of God. Born not 
of the will of man, but by the will of God. We cannot choose to be born again any more than any of us chose to be born in the first place. There is an outside force at work. Desires and efforts combining in the ultimate conception of a child is how someone is born. So it is with our new birth. It is an outside force at work wrapped up in the desires of God to bring a child into his family. Therefore, we will say that salvation is a monergistic work accomplished by God. Mono meaning one. Jism meaning work. Monergism, one working. Monergism holds that God saves sinners without their assistance. While synergism says that and teaches that salvation depends on your cooperation. In all its varieties, Synergism teaches that God's grace makes everything possible, but our response makes everything actual, which puts who in the position of authority? The one who actualizes is the one who is in authority. The one who makes it actual is the one who is in authority. But monergism teaches that God's grace accomplishes everything, even granting us the repentance and faith that is needed to receive it. Praise God. Why is this distinction so important? What's the ethos of Christian worship? Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. So be it. World without end. Amen. That's, that's the ethos of Christian worship. Why is this distinction so important? Because if God make everything possible, but I made it actual, who should I be praising? Good job, man. Well done. You go, you. You did it. Praise be to... I'm not even going to say it. That's why this is so important. What are we doing when we try to say that we are the ones? It was us. We are. <laughs> we want to talk about it when, it when it comes to tithing. We go to Malachi. Would you rob God? Would you rob Him? We, how many, we've, said, we've all been there. We've heard that sermon preached at the offering time. It's talking about our finances. Right now we're talking about the glory of God. Would you rob God of His glory? We live in a society that presupposes autonomy. We worship the image of the rugged individual and the spirit of get her done in the church. We often even try to get Jesus and His teaching to fit in to that mold and that grid which, hear me, is more like karma than it is the grace of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. In the modern evangelical church today, people are living with a false understanding of the new birth of, as something that is at least partially in our power to accomplish. We even celebrate and repeat the semi-Pelagian proverb, 
Made famous by Benjamin Franklin, God helps those who help themselves. As if it was some kind of tenet of faith. It's heresy. He meant well. It's heresy. But in the true message of the Gospel, the only thing left to do is to repent and believe. Which is part of the foolishness of our message, of our preaching of the cross. In our, our New Testament reading, just I think it was last week, the, the, the foolishness of preaching. Why is, the, why is it foolish? This thing that we've devoted ourselves to. It's foolish. The Bible says it's foolish. It's because it's a stumbling block to people. Why? Because we want something to do. We want to fashion fig leaves for ourselves and say that we did something to cover our own sin. Why? Because we're glory hogs. We want some glory. We want some glory. Luther said that we are either, he said, well, I'll say this, everyone is a theologian. Some are better than others. And there's basically two kinds of theologians in the world. Those that Luther said are theologians of glory and those that are theologians of the cross. Now when you just hear the words theologians of glory, oh, this sounds pretty good. Well, it sounds pretty good because we all like a little bit of glory. But theologians of glory is a terrible thing. Because in practice, the theologian of glory is that theologian who is pursuing their own glory. That, that is trying to live a life that is always uh, rising and, and arriving. That is pursuing their own glory, some merit by which to establish their salvation and obligate God to their service. But a theologian of the cross is a theologian that has nothing to cling to but Jesus Christ and His righteousness. Our Gospel is a Gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. It is not something that we uh, uh, add anything to. Our participation is passive. We receive it. We are not trying to accomplish some piece or part of our own redemption. Rather, we simply hear, believe, and receive, and then we are transformed. We don't change. We are changed. Made new. Reborn. Born again. So we reject a synergistic view of salvation because that is not what the Bible teaches. Often whenever one starts saying terms like monergism, or reading things out of the Bible like we read this morning, words like predestination, or talk about things like election. People think of some kind of, of arbitrary God who drags some people into heaven kicking and screaming while telling others who, who want to be saved, who are on their knees begging, please save me, sorry, you're not on the list. 
That's just not the picture of God that we get from Scripture. And while there are some who have taken these doctrines too far in their reach and have become blind to the inconsistencies in their own error, their abuse of this doctrine does not negate its truth. No one is saved by divine coercion. And no one is rejected apart from his or her own will. In other words, there will be no one in heaven that didn't want to be there. And there will be no one in hell that didn't choose that as their own will. God has only to leave us to our own devices if we are to be damned. But it requires the greatest works of the triune God to save the elect, including the death of the Father's only begotten Son. So if we are to be saved, God must, in His grace, grant us salvation. He must grant it to us. And so guys, this is so important. It's so important because what hinges on it is the glory of God. And it is the glory of God for which we were made. It is the glory of God for which we worship. And so we come to our times together. We come to worship this God who made us. We come to worship this God who predestined to adopt us and then worked the plan. A plan was there, it was put in place, and it was executed by God. It was not wishful thinking on God's part. Man, I really hope that out of all these people that we create, uh, some might make it. No. God's plan from the beginning was the cross of Jesus Christ. Before there was a garden, before there were two trees, before Eve picked one of them and took a bite, the plan was always the cross. The plan was always the condescension and incarnation of God the Son coming down and extending the love of God the Father and doing everything that was necessary to accomplish redemption so that salvation may be of grace and not by works, so that no one may boast and so that all the glory may go to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit who is blessed forever and ever. Amen. Amen. But if it is by grace, Romans 11 verse 6, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. It doesn't get much more simple than that. That's Paul's words. And it follows logic. If it is by grace, then it is no longer by works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. There are times when Paul can be confusing. Peter admits it. Praise God for that. This is not one of those times. Church, it is simple. It is simple. But what is the problem? The problem is that the reason this is an issue today is because we have made ourselves the center of a story about God. Let me just remind you how this whole thing begins. Following the simple rules of literary interpretation, we go to the beginning of the book. And at the beginning of the book, we see it says, in the beginning, God. 
This is his story. It's about him. It's about what he has done. It's about his glory. Now hear me. Does it have any effect upon you? Yes! It has great effect upon you. It has great effect upon us because of the work of God that He has done completely and totally because of His own desire to glorify Himself. You are transferred from a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light. You are moved from a place of sinful humanity into the glorious kingdom of His dear Son. You have moved from a place of complete and total unrighteousness to a place of righteousness that you have no claim to except that God has lavished it upon you in Christ Jesus. This has great effect on you. But it's not about you. It's about Him. Interestingly, that's kind of like our corporate worship services. Hello, this is not about you. It's not for you in a particular sense. But it is also for you in another sense. Because just like this story that is not about you but has great effect upon you, this is not about you, but it has great effect upon you. Remember, who's the host here? We have not come here to host God and bring Him down to us. We have come at His behest and invitation to be lifted up by Him as He hosts us. But the party is still His party. It's still about Him. It's to the praise of His glory. And He has lifted you up so that you can praise Him. And Oprah would say she doesn't know if she can worship such an egotistical God. She fails to understand what is so important for us to understand that God's glory is your good. Romans 8.28, we love it. We quote it. We read it. We think about it. We pray it. We write it on stuff at the end of emails and put it on mugs and t-shirts and bumper stickers. For God causes all things to work together for the good for them that love Him and are called according to His purpose. Don't read any further. You might see big words like predestination again. But church, we take Romans 8.28 and we bring it and we put it together with Ephesians 1 and we let Scripture interpret Scripture. And what do we see? What do we see in Ephesians 1, 3-14? It's not contrary to what Paul said in Romans 8.28. He's just saying it and stating it differently with different emphasis. Paul says in Romans 8.28, all things work together for the good of them that love God and are called according to His purpose. But here, in Ephesians 1, 3-14, Paul says that God is causing all things to work together for the praise of His glory. 
Which one is it? It's both. For God's glory is your good. It's not about you, but it has great effect upon you. And we must stop showboating and trying to rob God of His own glory, but rather bow our knee to the God of our salvation. Our salvation was not an end to itself, but rather a means to an end for God's intention of adopting children that He had chosen for Himself. And He did all of this by His own desire, according to the purpose of His own will, for the praise of His glorious grace. And church, let me ask you a question. If God has purposed it, who then can thwart God's plan? No one. No one. It may seem like for a moment that God is being robbed of His glory. But He is being patient. And those who are robbing God of His glory are storing up for themselves condemnation, Peter will tell us. And a day of reckoning will come. And the question will be, whom did you glorify with your life? Was it a mirrored reflection of your own image? Or was it the God who made you in His? For we are not elected unto salvation, we are elected unto adoption. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved, and with whom He will not share that glory with anyone. So then, in our worship, as we gather, let it be for the glory of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen? Let us pray. God, we thank You for Your Word this morning, this reminder to us out of Ephesians chapter 1, that all of this is not about us, but it is about You. It is about the praise of Your glory. Why did You save us, God? You saved us so that Your glory may be praised. Why did You adopt us? You adopted us. You adopted us so that Your glory may be praised. Why have You given us breath and brought us to this place? You've done it so that Your glory may be praised. God, would You convict us of ways that we have intentionally or unintentionally robbed You of the glory that only You deserve? And would You, God, now, by the grace and the power of Your Holy Spirit, with whom You have given us in Your Son, would You lead us into deeper rhythms of praise for Your glory in our lives? May we recognize, God, that everything that we have 
is a gift from you. But that even if it was all taken away, that if we have Jesus, we have everything that we need. And still, we can lift up praise to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. God bless you as we move into a time of communion now together.